And we're back, everyone. My name is Samantha Zessi. Yo, it's your pretty boy, Ramoy George Philip the first. <laughs> and this is Masculinity. Thank you again for joining us this week. So, what's been up? What's been going on with everyone? As for me, I'm excited because this week I found out that New York Times has the first gender editor ever in the history of the newspaper. And I'm excited. By the time you guys hear this, I probably will already have gone to the talk already. But um, I'm really excited to hear what she has to say and uh, how this all came about. So one of the... Hey, gender editor, uh, there's a a podcast called Masculinity out of Brooklyn. Give us a shout. That's right. She's about to get one of these cards. That's for sure. Um, And I mean, honestly, it's like... So obviously I was excited about it, right? But then I'm like... Of course, thinking about this show and being like, what if the gender editor was actually a man? Like, how exciting would that be? But then, you know what? Actually, now that I think about it again, I'm thinking back to Michael Kimmel's uh, wise words, which is that men have talked enough and it's time for them to listen. Right? Yeah, I'm just trying to listen. (laughs) Yeah, so, you know, I'm excited for that. Uh, Other than that, I'm pretty excited that New York hasn't been, like, frigid cold, so... Yeah, it's been r- rather temperate, mm-hmm. and I'm not mad about it at all. I know. I'm not wearing stockings today. My legs are out and about doing their thing. <clears throat> Yo, I don't know if you've seen. I'm just gonna. Netflix is so easy. It's hard not to just be at the end of the night, just like I'm just gonna put on some Netflix, whether yeah. I'm engaged or whether I just need to fall asleep to something nice and funny and sweet. Yeah. Uh, but to do both, there's a really cool show that's in its second season that I really enjoy. It's called One Day at a Time. Have you seen that? No, but it's I like, trust you, so I'm going to check it out. So Norman Lear, who made some of the better sitcoms, like multicam sitcoms of the 70s and 80s and earlier even, it's like a reboot of his original show, One Day at a Time, and he's the executive producer on this one. Hmm. Uh, but what makes this show so special is like it's a traditional multicam sitcom you know, with a studio audience and a laugh track and whatever. And some of the storylines are pretty generic, but it's handled from the characters, which are a single mother Cuban woman raising her gay daughter. What? And oh, son. this new one is the new one oh. is, <laughs> and with her Cuban mother, so the grandmother living at home, a really interesting neighbor character that I don't want to go too much into because. He's a clever twist to show. Anyways, it's just really fun, and it handles a lot of really interesting storylines through these specific lenses, and coming from a single-parent minority household, it was just, it's just so refreshing. Like, it makes me happy because, mm. you know. That's awesome. Growing up back in the day, we didn't see too much of that. And Yeah. So the aim of the show, as you guys know, is really to have a conversation that will lead to greater understanding and to more opportunities for us to be, to have a more equal society. Right. And so what we've done is we've decided to use masculinity as a lens through which we'll have that conversation, not just because of patriarchy, but also because of the many intersections of injustices that people have endured, compounding the effects of said patriarchy. Right. So, I mean, and if we're real, specifically men, but of course, there are levels to this shit. Right. This week, we are looking at incarceration. That We're using the lens of masculinity to look at incarceration. We, uh, we're going to look at the ways that this practice is affecting our country and the really, uh, I guess, poignant impact it has on men and boys. Uh, it's gotten out of control. Incarceration has is, it's become an industry, and over the past 40 years, the population in our prisons has increased 500 times over. 
apparently our prisons hold about 2 million people. Of that amount, 60% are men of color. Uh, so we're going to explore how this affects men and boys brought up in such an atmosphere. And so today, to help us navigate this issue, we have Alejo Rodriguez. Thank you so much for being Shout here. Shout out to the man. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Um, so Alejo is a mentoring and alumni coordinator at Prisoner Reentry Institute, which is part of John Jay. So it's an, an organization essentially working to create a context in which people who have had criminal justice contact in any way are supported in their reentry into society. And then the organization advocates for policy and implements programs to support that vision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, Alejo, thank you so much for being here. I'm super juiced about the knowledge that you're about to drop. Um, first off, can we just know a little bit about? What you do, a little bit about you, like, tell us, tell us what's up. Well, we know, like, once again, thank you um, for having me here. Uh, you know, I think there's a real significant issue talking about masculinity and, and even looking at it from the lens of how, um, you know, it's affected or has its, has an effect or impact in, in the prison industrial complex mm-hmm. and just men are experiencing it. So, you know, I, I kind of feel, you know, from my position working, um, in the prison reentry complex and from my own experience. So I guess this is a two-fold introduction, introduction to why I'm here. Mm-hmm. You know, um, one is my responsibilities, right? I, I work for the Prisoner Reentry Institute, uh, more specifically for the college initiative. And what we do is we help serve, you know, all individuals, uh, men and women, who had any kind of contact with the criminal justice system and if they seek to want to enter into the CUNY system, we help to support them in that process to help them get enrolled, help them into the schools they want to select to go into. And uh, my specific responsibility is uh, to manage a team of mentors, you know, the individuals who themselves have partaken in the programs and in college who also want to be able to support and rec- a reinvestment in who we are. Um, so we have a team of mentors, and it's very important because even though we're working out of John Jay, you know, individuals can roll and enter in any school in the CUNY system. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so in this way, it's important that we have mentors that can spread out to wherever the students go. So is this organization, the Institute, is that national or is it uh, local? Well, it, it is local. Okay. Started here in New York, but we've been getting more and more questions sure. from people through all out the country. Oh, absolutely. That's what I wonder. Um, and at this stage, our um, you know, we're limited. Sure. But we do often offer advice um, and some input and feedback and helping to guide and navigate people in their questions and how they get involved in their own system well, in their own state. Well, then how did you get personally involved or why did you personally get involved? Well, that's the other aspect of, you know, uh, of my introduction. Um, first thing is that um, I, too, am an individual who's been subjected to the criminal justice um, system. Um, I served 32 years of incarceration. I have um, recently been released in June of 2017. Uh, during that time, uh, I actually w- was able to achieve my college education very early on in my prison sentence. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and it was before they started taking away accessibility to college. So I ended up 
I ended up, that was like in 95, they really just pulled back sure. a lot of government support. Which makes no sense, but fine. Exactly. It yeah. doesn't, you know, um, all the stats or, show that individuals who have a college education, I mean, it's consistent. It's, it's, a, it's a consistent evidence-based reports that individuals who have taken, have college education at some kind of level of college experience have the lowest recidivism rate. Right. You know, we're talking comparison from the average of a 65% nationally um, recidivism rate to individuals who go to college have like a 2%, less than 10. Let's say, let's just be fair. I'll do an overestimation, but sure. we'll say less than 10. That's a huge difference. That's a giant difference. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and the cost of these things is, is in, in, the, in, the, grand scheme in, of things. in the grand scheme of the prison industrial complex is very minimal. Well, in terms of my introduction, after serving my time, um, I got involved with John Jay via a different program, um, and uh, it, it was really had a lot to do with the relationship building while inside that led to how I got this position now. I was able to begin a networking with people from inside through the educational system. So in so many ways, college is more than just it's more, and this is the aspect that I want to share in terms of talking about college. It's it's more than just the classroom experience. It's more than just a textbook, right? You know, there is um, a humanization that is able to contribute in the college experience that we don't normally see in a prison experience. That's right. You know, you end up having different kind of conversations. You have different kinds of sense of what what we begin to hold accountable for, you know, not so much who's the biggest or who's the strongest and who can fight the best, but who can contribute and, f and know how to further conversations, sure. you know, and, and educate ourselves. So we end up creating different value systems in many respects. And, you know, these things, you know, in my opinion, relate directly to our socialization. Getting to the heart of the matter, you know, what I'm really looking forward to talking about in this conversation with you is, really the systemic imbalance that incarceration creates, right? And essentially, like, I mean, first off, I want to give a disclaimer that we know that this is something that affects men and men and women. You know, mm -hmm. and Alejo, mm -hmm. you, you and I have talked about how, you know, with women's prisons, there's a whole lot of their, you know, a whole lot going on. Uh, so, you know, we're going to focus on men and masculinity today. That's not saying that there aren't issues elsewhere. Obviously, there are. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know... If we're looking at incarceration in the United States, it's impossible to ignore the fact that, because you're talking about community involvement, one of the things that you mentioned about community involvement that I want to really address here is one of the things you mentioned was inter intergenerational impact yeah. of incarceration, yeah. right? And so how really, if we're talking about the kind of support that we're going to give to people who are coming home, Let's talk talking about what we can do as a community to have to to be preventative rather than reactive. Mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm. um, does that make sense? Yes, yeah. it makes all the sense in the world. And this is a very, I think, it's a very important um, topic. And I too want to make a disclaimer, um, and that is that, and, and I do so because I'm real sensitive when people tend to speak about the prison experience as they're all-knowing and or as if their individual experience is what happens to everybody. Universal, you know, it's very universal. I mean, like, I hate to see it the way Hollywood does it, 
you know, I've had people respond to, you know, ask me stuff about about prison. And I say, like, where do you get this from? Well, we saw it on TV, you know, and different states, different practices, you know, different applications. You have to always take these things in consideration when you start talking about. Real talk, um, yeah. Yeah, what the, what the prison experience is in your own community. Sure. Yeah. Um, That's fair. But with that said, there is some things that are very, very significant, especially when we start talking about it from an intergenerational perspective. You know, things that we're talking about it from, how it has imp- impacted, and it's, and it's, it's relationship with the black community, black and Hispanic community, right? Um, so I like to like borrow right now from the quote of like a Michelle Alexander, a often, yes. often overlooked quote. And that is, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but she said, um, she wrote that if we had truly learned compassion and understanding from the civil rights movement, we would have never entered into this era of mass incarceration. Mm. Mm. And the way she, if anyone who's read the book, speaks about how the criminalization of the black and Hispanic individual has, has been very, very, uh, uh, very targeted. So the book being The New Jim Crow. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Thank mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. you know, I'm taking for granted everybody read it, right? <laughs> but I want to be specific. Thank you very much. Um... So when we start talking about intergenerational stuff, we're not just talking about prison. It's today, this is our current era, but it's very much related to segregation, very much related to um, slavery. And when we see from all these elements, what is clear is that there's been, uh, Besides the racist and economic aspect, what is very clear in this society is there's been an intent of social control of a group of people. That's right. However you want to look at it, you know, we could talk about 65%, you know, disproportionate black and black and Hispanic. But when we start talking about, you know, class mm-hmm. and individuals who are poor, a lower middle class, we're talking to 90%, you know, in the 90s, easy. So... Um, you know, I've always felt, and because of this, that any time that, that we are going to rely on it in a form of incarceration or just segregation or any kind of these forms as a means of social control over people, we're never fully going to be human. Right. We, we would never really support this ideal of a democracy and who we are as a people, and, every, and we're lying to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so... The idea of understanding this from an intergenerational aspect is is also being fully aware that how or let me say it shows up on the face. In my experience, I've I've been incarcerated with fathers and sons, mm-hmm. where individuals is doing time and is and his father's locking in the next block over. Right. Yeah. You know, Damn. that when they, and, and that, you know, sells away, essentially. Like when they have, when they meet with their family, they're meeting with their family in a, in a prison environment. Wow. You know, um, I've known individuals whose family members are in other prisons that they're, they're now their family has to go from one visit on one weekend on one facility and then go all the way upstate to another facility the next following weekend. 
And it's like prison is just part of like what you understand is it's just part of your family dynamics, part of your life at that point. And it's yeah. like just yeah, it becomes it, it and it's definitely becomes almost desensitized right. that the act that we going we're going to prison like it's only become it always become like he just hate to just use this cliche but a new normal right yeah it becomes normalized color and um what we've what we've learned and what we've seen is that I think there's a um a study by a guy named Todd Clear oh yeah very significant researcher and he did a study in Florida. Um, highly quoted in a lot of different research books. I haven't read the, the research. I've just actually been reading from the quotes that others have, have acknowledged, such as Michelle Alexander, um, Ernest Drucker in his book, um, The Plague of Prisons, that where communities have been plagued by high incarceration rates, that in the, it, the, the, the turn of events has proven to show that it increases more incarceration. Sure. Which is flabbergasting as a society to think that if we want our society to get better, we would do everything that opposes that and combats that. Correct. Right. To have a better society as a whole. Correct. Yeah. You know, but for and, some reason we don't. Yeah. And um, the core findings of this was not just because of the economics that was happening as the impact of, the, of those communities, but we're talking about people there who no longer have the right to vote. Right. So even if they're released, they can't even contribute to the policy making, you know, as an individual in their own community. Right. Yeah. Right? And so it ends up as it, it appears as if no one cares about that community. Well, because well, when because well, when you're saying that, where I'm hearing the next, the, where where my mind is going to right in terms of like social control is then like how the black family gets controlled, mm-hmm. right? And like how f- father's absence creates then a dynamic where I mean, you know, where you have a mother who is raising all children alone, and that creates kind of like this. This dynamic, right, if you're like a young man growing up in a household and you know that prisons are made up of 60, of the, the 60% of prisons are made up of people who look exactly like you, mm-hmm. you know, like, and then you're, you know that your presence is being, their presence is being used for things that, for them to gain, for, for people to gain access to things that ultimately are not going to do anything for you, what like this is like the systematic nature of it all is that it leads to what I presume probably would be some sort of definitely feelings, right? Maybe feelings mm-hmm. of anger, maybe feelings of frustration, maybe feelings of something, you know what I mean? And then, and then, you know, to your point, which, you know, we've talked about like earlier is like, where, what do you do with that? What do you do with you exist your existence in this country as it relates to incarceration is directly related to being used for other people's means and not at all contributing to who you are and who your people are. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then 
you so you're growing up with that going to school doing your own thing or whatever and then you realize that your resources are already depleted and that whatever you exist for in terms of a like a contribution to society is going to be taken and given to someone else mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so then what do you do it's with that it, it's as if you're worthless that you don't count you know it's as if um um, whatever sense of self-esteem that you might have a person, and then, and hence, as a community, it has no value. And, you know, um, and this is why it's important to look at this not so much in this isolated presence of what we're currently going through, but looking at it in terms of the connections going back into slavery. And this is why we see there's a very significant intergenerational effect and impact that has happened in our communities. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very much like when um, a slave would, would um, a slave master, I would say, would dehumanize a man, specifically knowing that this, uh, if he wants to control the man, if you would, the, or demasculate or emasculate the man, mm -hmm. right? Um, that carries over into how now, let's say, his children see the father. Right. You know, yeah. James Baldwin, and I hate to use the word, but I'm being very, I'm quoting, quoting, he goes, I never, I never knew, um, understood what the word nigger meant until I seen my father, you know, being told what to do, and he could not, he did not respond. Sure. Hmm. And I knew then what the word nigger meant. Richard Ball, I mean, Richard Wright, pretty much said in, in, in the book Bigger Thomas that it meant this sense of internalized hatred toward the self so that pretty much you don't even count and you know you don't count and so anything can happen you know whatever you do is good right in in in, in terms of justifying so if you commit crime if you know if you you know drink a lot drugs, you, you're having domestic violence, whatever. It, it's all because you don't really count anyway. Yeah, You have no sense of value anyway. So this is where we see some of the, the, the forms of, 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 or some of the symptoms of the examples of how is there's intergenerational effect um, and how it connects now is because what's been happening is now they're criminalizing that. So here it is, is the, the symptoms of being subjected to being worthless, but now it's being criminalized because you're doing the very same things that, that you know, that has been allowed. You know, people have been frustrated with their systems before. You know, blacks and Hispanics, as, as again, New Jim Crow points out, are, the only, are not the only ones using drugs, but we're the ones being criminalized behind it. Right. So it's clear that there's a connection between in, in the intergenerational effect. And, and you know, Samantha, you, you made out a very good point in terms of dealing with the frustrations and then not knowing what to do with that. Right. And this is where I think it's very significant in terms of the term, like, you know, our, our sense of masculinity. You know, and I really didn't get it. Like, I, I got it when you asked me to, to be here. And then you said, it's masculinity spelled with a K. <laughs> and I, and I, get, I said, okay, cool. But when I seen it, mask that in all in in in, many, in much respects is the idea that the mask is more predominant than any kind of um uh, representation of our manhood that there's more of a mask there right, right. Mm -hmm. um 
And how was that mask created? How was that mask actually not only is it created, but supported? And, you know, one of the things I shared with you before was, you know, like, say, for an example, it's very common. We learn, you know, as, as men, you know, boys are not supposed to cry, right? It's very common. You know, I use it as an example. And But what's clear, and people say, well, that's not fair to the boy. He's not human. He is human. You know, it's not a real emotion and all that. Don't cry. You know, and we're not even having a discussion. Okay, well, what do you do then? Like, what do you do besides, because as, it's as if we only can deal with anger and pain. Mm. And anger and hurt. And so, what do you do when you're frustrated? Depressed, lonely. Sad. Sad, right? What do you do when you have these, these feelings? And we're not even having this discussion amongst it as men, right? Um, and so, the, the uh, uh, reaction has been to claim to claim and cling to certain vices right the getting high domestic violence beating of women um, objectifying women yeah. ob- you know the issue of you know we talk about how the police brutality has been you know come to a claim this is, this police brutality has been around you know like the whole Rodney King situation all that did was evidence that, listen, you guys, this has been happening, and you've been saying we're lying, but now this is evidence. And we get evidence after evidence after evidence, and after, it keeps happening, right? Yeah. So we know that's really significant. But the other thing, too, is that we're also killing each other at, at, at very significant rates. Yeah. And so how much are we holding that accountable in, in this way? I have a question. Yeah. and. So what you're, and you're saying some profound things. It's that we have this, you know, this circuitry of imprisonment, and it it, it it's this incredible circuitry where it's it starts with dehumanization and it's intergenerational, and that dehumanization predicates towards the next generation, and so on and so forth, and it just keeps keeps going down, link by link by link, father to son, father to son, grandfather to grandson, and so on and so forth. I'm just wondering what that effect looks like on a man. On a man, yeah. How does dehumanization affect a man specifically? Um, I think we see it in hyper hyper aggression. You know, um, because what we've what we've learned in this society, and this is true of men and when we learn to be aggressive, gets rewarded. Even though we talk about how bad. Right, it's not a good how it's not a good virtue to be hyper aggressive. You know, the truth of the matter is, we respond to that. We yeah. respond to bullying. Like just now, people are talking about it as being, but the truth of the matter is, we rewarded bullies throughout this whole history in this country. We've all, and at very at the very least, we've known how to give bullies their space. Right, and so people who are oppressed and do not have the ability or the, or the tendency or, or even the flexibility or wherewith or however you want to call it to, to confront their oppressors, as we've known, tend to oppress each other. That's and they right. oppress each other in the same ways in which they have been oppressed. Mm-hmm. And, and what's happened is the oppressor rewards that. Like, say, for example, the, the, there's no coincidence like the Irish population of men become the cops, Right. In, in the history of um, policing the in New York. Because yeah. at one time, they were the European black people. They were their Absolutely. subjects. 
and they got abused so much. And, okay, but you guys could be you because you're so low on the on the totem pole. You guys could be in control of controlling the blacks because we don't want to control them. Talking about the the the, the white uh, Anglo Saxons who was the money of the New York City. Listen, you guys control the blacks, and they do the same thing that they was being controlled against them. That's the only tool that they knew. Colonization, same thing. You know, so this is how it ends up looking at, and we end up rewarding. We reward anger, even though it's not it's not a good virtue. We reward it, and people learn it. And you know, that's why some kids ain't listen. If I'm going to be treated like a like a, again a nigga, I'm I'm going to act that way, and you're going to reward me for it. I know you are. I think that. Um, so I know we we got to wrap up, but I just want to say this one last thing because you know when we t- think about like killing, like like gang violence mass shooting right like the suburban mass shooting versus like you know gang violence like the urban cities and like black folks killing each other or whatever i think that what you just said about that is brilliant right because like one of the things that like mass shooters have said is like okay all of this frustration that i've had at least i'll be remembered Mm -hmm. at least people will remember me Mm -hmm. right and it's like what we're not talking about is like what's what's the core of that fire, right? That's brewing both in situations where both in white suburbia that's masculine that we, you know, chalk up to uh, to mental health and in gang violence that we say is just thuggery and like black folks just do this yes. and whatever. Like, when when are we having that conversation of like both both camps are shooting? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah, bo- both camps are killing. Both both camps are killing unnecessarily. Well, you know, unnecessarily. You know, people, people who are going postal are tend- have a tendency to they respond to some type of social imbalance that they feel right. Yes, absolutely. there's no doubt about it. Yeah. And so we see it how horrible it is when they go into they go into spaces in classrooms and they're shooting up right, shooting mm-hmm. kids and everything. Mm-hmm. But if we it, so we see the we see the 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 impact of it immediately. But if we look at some other schools and other school districts, like say in the Bronx, in certain parts of Brooklyn, and, and in Hall, and it happens on a slower scale, the amounts of deaths pretty much equalize. I think that there was an article, um, I'm saying this, there was an article in the Daily News, I can't remember, a couple of years ago, it was after the Sandy Hook mm. um, shooting, and it was by a guy named Jeffrey Canada, I believe his name was, and he wrote about as hard, and he, he was traumatized by the Sandy Hook experience, he says, do you know, he want, Amer- he want New York City to know that within like in a year or two years' time, in a school in Harlem, the same amount of deaths had occurred, but it was happening more like on a weekly, monthly basis. And this is just as horrifying, and yet we're not paying it no mind. Why? Because we can criminalize the black man we can criminalize a Hispanic man, or it's a poor situation. They don't know how to handle certain situations. But when you look at it, they're responding to so much negative social influences that's happening right there in the community. Mm-hmm. When you look around and you realize how you're living, and you come downtown, you see how other people are living in these gentrified neighborhoods and how they're living, you look and say, hey, obviously I don't matter. So who cares if I now sling some drugs? Who cares if I now start shooting or carrying a gun because I want to protect myself? And if somebody disrespects me, I'm going to blast. And I'm not saying, I'm not justifying logic at all. 
But if, and I'm not trying to minimize or diminish the significance of some of these shootings like Sandy Hook. But I think we need to begin to look at both these things on equal scale. Mm -hmm. These are reactions to social inequalities, to either bullying or whatever the case may be, right? Um, And a person feeling unsupported. It's so important to know how to support each other as individuals and support the community. If not, these things are going to continue to happen. And the Sandy Hooks in the small areas is, is an example of people feeling not supported and whatever whatever issues that young man was going through and other on the other individuals going through. If you read time and time again of, of these mass shootings in these schools, there's there's a theme that happens where people are feeling isolated feeling they're being either being bullied. It might be a really twisted interpretation, but without communicating to these individuals, we would never know that they're misinterpreting something. Right, right, yes. And without and any sort of emotional education for men, specifically in these instances, yeah. whether they're, quote-unquote, in the hood or whether they're in rich suburbia. Like exactly. Men need access to emotional intelligence. That's right. Ex- 100%. Yeah. 100%. Wow. Well, I mean, we could keep talking. Um, we'll for, keep talking forever. at a further date, for sure. Yeah, I mean, this is amazing. Like, Alejo, I can't thank you enough for blessing us with this, with just, like, your wisdom and, like, your knowledge and just your all-around, like, badass savantness about mm. the issues that you talk about. Like, you're super connected not just because you're knowledgeable, but because you're just wise. And I really just want to thank you for being here. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. No, thank that you, too. Awesome. This is really, and you know, it's really just a, it's a perspective. And I just, it's so important that we learn to be able to, um, you know, listen to different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yes, I have been incarcerated. Um, and it's not so much that. You know, we would talk about, you know, we need to have more leaders or people coming from incarceration to talk to teachers about that experience. But the truth of the matter is it's a, it's a human experience mm-hmm. and um, right. it's a voice that I'm, I'm representing right now mm-hmm. to speak, to say, you know, there's something that needs to be considered as we look at some of the social issues such as masculinity and, and, and other things that impact us in a broader way. So it's, you know, it's a contribution. I'm really thankful to have the opportunity to do so. Um, the question of how wise I am, I don't know. <laughs> like I, you know, we so, bow down right yeah. now, man. We bow down to the wisdom. Uh, no, yeah. yeah. So um, I, you know, I just appreciate this opportunity, and you know, um, I'm glad it came out. No, I'm, I'm definitely you. glad you're here. I'm definitely glad to be here in person to listen, and I, I speak for all the listeners that we have listening virtually with their headsets on or wherever. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it it not just takes. It does, this isn't just a conversation of talking, right? This is a conversation for listening. So thank you to everyone out there who's listening. Yes, yes, uh, thank you. And please share this with other potential listeners. And how do they share it? How do we share it? Yes, so uh, please be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Masculinity Podcast. That's masculinity with a K, of course. No, Masculinity Pod. Masculinity Podcast is actually our Facebook. Um, so yeah, we also have a brand new spanking new email with our collaboration with who is Theo. So it's going to be masculinity podcast at who is Theo.com for any questions that you want us to answer on the show. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please pass the word along. This is very important in this day and age. We've got to be there for one another and be responsible. So my name is Samantha Zessi. My name is Ramoy George Phil the first. Thank you for listening. Ciao. Peace.